Let me show you how it's done. Hi, folks. We are back with Ken Zakalik. So it's so interesting because Ken is a part of like a little trio where we come up with really, really great ideas that we want to push forward in innovation. And so it made sense for us to bring him on. Let me tell you a little bit about Ken. So Ken is an innovation leader with a track record of driving culture change and implementing strategic initiatives in fast-paced, high-growth environments. With a focus on emerging technologies, he has a proven ability to identify and leverage new technologies to drive business growth and enhance customer experiences. Throughout his career, Ken has consistently demonstrated his ability to build and lead high-performing teams, generate new ideas, and execute complex projects. He is a skilled communicator and collaborator, able to work effectively with diverse teams and stakeholders at all levels of an organization. All that said, Ken is an innovative and divergent thinker who's passionate about diving into emerging technology and exploring capabilities to drive value and impact, works hard to sniff out bullshit and discover wrong turns, and help companies rapidly take advantage of strategic opportunities. So that just gives you a little bit of an idea of some of the cool stuff Ken may be working on. So Ken, thank you for being on the podcast today. Oh, thanks to you both. I appreciate being here. So now it's so interesting because uh, Tam and I always kind of back and forth on like what we're going to talk about before things happen. And I I remember as we were talking about this one, we we're just like, well, let's start off with this like Horizon one, two, three stuff that's out there, right? So one, can can you define what Horizon one, two, and three is, and then you also give us some examples and kind of how did heck do we get here for that term? Hi, I'm Ken, and I work at Nike Valiant Labs. I'm the head of product. And so Valiant Labs is Nike's uh, digital innovation area. And we think of all the really cool new things that we should be bringing out to the marketplace uh, in the digital side. This concept, there's a lot of buzzy terms out there. But yeah. Horizon 1, 2, and 3 is actually something that I like because it's just a really easy way of explaining innovation. And I use it quite a bit. Of all the buzzy things out there, the Horizons is helpful. Some examples and how I'm thinking about it, but I'll say um, there is an official definition of a Horizon 1, 2, and 3, and I don't have it in front of me, so I cannot read it to you. However, I can speak to how I've internalized Horizon 1, 2, 3 and how it guides some of the things that I think about and how I operate through. And I think there's a lot of that going on in regards to how you people are utilizing frameworks. And we can get into a whole conversation around frameworks. I don't necessarily always love them. However, if you think about horizons one, two, three, you think about those on a linear time scale where horizon one is close, horizon two is further out, and horizon three is real far. And so when you think about things that you're able to accomplish within those horizons or how far away certain technologies are, it's a great place to model it. But I believe that it's modeled on the Clayton Christensen model of mental sustained and disruptive innovation. And I do have a frame of mind about what guides those specific things. And so when you think about it in the practical sense, something that you can accomplish in a horizon one timeframe is probably something that's a little bit more incremental. And the way that I process that is to say, it's truly business model innovation. You've got tools, you've got capabilities, and you're probably focused on a specific area of business and you're serving that business well. And you want to expand your reach into a new and differentiated audience. And maybe you need to iterate your technology slightly in order to achieve that product market fit for that specific audience. But really, it's an incremental shift. There's no heavy lift there. It's really a matter of, hey, we're going to dedicate resources and time into doing a specific thing here. Let us go and do that thing. And then you can see how that market responds. And you've either hit your business model innovation or you haven't. 
when you think about something, in my opinion, that's sustained or in Horizon 2 timeframe, you probably need a little bit more technology. It needs to be differentiated. And it's something that's in within your wheelhouse. You know how to get this thing done. You've got your technology capabilities, building your foundation for what it is that you want to do. But really, it's a little bit more than just identifying a new audience. You've got to actually change your product to meet it. And then you think about your disruptive or your Horizon 3 timeframe. And those are things that are substantively different than what you do today. And that requires your building holistically something new, probably for an audience that you don't already speak to or doesn't know you in a meaningful way. And you've now got to get in there and you've got to be able to identify who you are, why you're important, why you can add value in that area. You've got to probably get something that's at least comparable to what's already in the market with your differentiated experiences in order to achieve that new and differentiated thing. Uh, so if I were going to go through and I was going to say uh, some examples for Horizon 1, I would say that uh, Square offering services back to the businesses to say, hey, let's create a loan program for you. We're already, they're already in your business. They're already serving your customers. They're already processing your transactions. And so creating lines of credit based upon what they know your earnings are to give businesses a loan might be something that's incremental for that specific business. If you're thinking through... Somebody like Honda is probably a bad example, but I'm going to roll with it. But if you think through Honda and they're saying, hey, we want to get into, let's just imagine they wanted to get into tractors. That's something that's completely within Honda's wheelhouse to be able to achieve. They know how to create engines. They know how to create chassis and bodies. They know how to make wheels move. They know how to make mechanical parts function. And if that's an area of business they wanted, of course, they'd have to retool their systems to be able to produce those types of products. However, nobody would be completely shocked to say, oh, Honda went into the tractor business. It would add up. You would be able to, to do that type of thing. I think on the third, on the disruptive and Verizon 3 side could be anything that sort of comes out of left field. And I don't know, I'm failing to come up with really good examples because I think they're so rare. But if you think about Apple getting into the iPod game and being a music player, I think way back then when they were PC manufacturer and they had to retool things for different form factors for different audiences reliant on different power sources they had to completely figure out how they were going to pull that one off and it came from complete left field nobody saw it coming right Sony who was owning the portable music space obviously wasn't thinking in the same way or wasn't able to figure out the right the right user experience in order to make that happen so that's one example I would say of, of a disruptive act by, by a large company. One way I like to explain Horizon 1, 2, and 3 is along the continuum of, let's just say, Uber, because everybody knows that. It's a good case. Horizon 1 being very close to the core, personalization, I like the way you mentioned that. For Uber, that could have been Uber Pool or Split Fare. Uber saying, we have a customer group. We have a problem that we're solving for them. How do we extract more value from that customer is really the question that they're trying to answer. And something like Uber Pool or Split Fares is a feature that they may come up with. For Uber, Horizon 2 for them was essentially Uber Eats. Same customers, new product, maybe an adjacent customer group, a couple new customers they could have gotten along the way. One point of differentiation I like to make about Horizon 3 is it may not necessarily mean it's a new customer group, but it does mean that it fundamentally changes the way that you do business. And for Uber, that was autonomous driving. Their play into looking that far out in the future and saying, fundamentally, how will our business be different in the future? Them looking into autonomous driving vehicles and trying to pave the way there is an example 
of Horizon 3 for a company. And the point I think that I'm trying to make here is, and we can expound on this, Ken, is why is it or is it not important for companies when they place their bets, let's say, that they are doing so mindfully in all three of these categories, or do they need to be doing so mindfully in all three of these categories? Everybody knows that you need to be tending the field, Horizon 1 opportunities, right? It's very easy for your competitors to steal your current customers. Every company understands, especially startups, this is a way make or break them phase of their, their trajectory. They know how to till the field currently. They know how to attend to the customers that they currently have. And then they meet this critical part in their journey where it's about growth. And there's only so much value you can extract from the customers that you currently have. And now it's about what do we do next? And... What's the internal conversations that companies are having at this point? So that's really interesting. And I want to roll with it for just a quick second. So I think what's interesting when you think about, when you think about digital disruption, everything is fairly easy, right? I mean, when you're thinking about what you're developing and how it's operating and how you're delivering it and all of those things, it's fairly easy. I think what was interesting about the Uber move in that Horizon 3 model is what business does Uber have developing an autonomous driving car? Now, that's well and good. They obviously are resourced to be able to do such a thing. But something interesting came up in my attention not too long ago when you think through what are all the moving pieces necessary and are you set up for success in that thing? And so when you think about, let's say, all the companies that distribute goods throughout the United States and they want to acquire a new type of good they want to distribute, but their supply chain and their systems for bringing in new products, storing those and inventorying those, and then releasing those could break anything new that you're trying to do. And so whether or not you're able to build the technology necessary for you to be able to create a self-driving car, how are you able to create a supply chain that gets the device that you need to whomever else it is? And things can break in the supply chain. And it's just this really interesting thing coming from a digital background to think through that, oh, you've got a new product that doesn't fit the box that you're normally used to dealing with. And not only do you have to get that technology right to say, yes, we can actually drive correctly and it can integrate with the systems of the car in the way that we need it to do because it's technology and a digital interface. How are we actually now creating a supply chain that necessitates people getting the devices that they need in order to be successful in that? And if you can't be profitable in that supply chain, then the whole business doesn't matter. I would push back on that because I think that it, speaking of the Uber case, they did not succeed in this autonomous driving. And it's probably because they tried to invest in it in a way that they were not set up or had an advantage to win at. In instances like this, if the message to any organization is you should be placing bets in all three of these horizons in order to hedge against the future, a company who was not built to invest in something like autonomous driving, which is Horizon 3, deep technology, should not not place their bets in that category just because they don't have the competency today. They're just going to have to invest in different ways. I don't think Uber should have been in the position to do it in the way that they did it. They essentially got into issues with Google for stealing trade secrets. What they probably should have done is what Amazon did is just invest in a startup that's already doing it like they did with Rivian. There are other ways to invest in your Horizon 3s when you do not have the capabilities in-house because, to your point, these are all the things that you're going to have to think about. 
And it could be daunting if you have to wait until you've sorted that out before you take the next step. Yep. Other thing that's very interesting that you say that is, is so for instance, this is something I, I, I'm pretty sure you probably don't talk to your clients about, just like I talk to my clients about, is that it also still comes back to this idea of buy versus build, right? This is like one of the oldest questions that you have in products. And it's one of those that I continue to see people struggle with. It's people who are just like, oh, we have to build everything. If we don't build it end to end, how can we possibly own the idea? How can we possibly monetize it? But the simple fact is sometimes buy is a much more effective and efficient way to, one, get to Horizon 3, but it's also cheaper. I cannot tell you enough. So in my time in Netflix, there were so many systems that we personally built because we made the decision that we had to build them. And the simple reality is if we had just partnered with one or two different partners, chances are we would have eliminated years of tech debt years of trying to accomplish the exact same thing that we could have purchased for something that was something like a third of the cost. Like I, I, literally I was working on a project before I switched from finance and membership data team to gaming that we were just literally, we were trying to figure out if we should buy something or if we should continue to try to build. And then when you started going back through, it turned out that they had been trying to build the same thing for like years. It's ever okay for a tech company or any type of organization to take that long to build something that's going to get them to that, that next insight that next thing that's going to change their business for the better. And so I think that this is actually one of the quintessential problems with companies. And notice I'm not saying just tech companies either. I'm actually saying companies, right? Because even Uber in some ways is not a tech company, right? It's not a traditional tech company. It added technology to a, to practices that already existed, just made it more efficient and more effective to do that. But it's not really a traditional tech company. It's not going to go out there and create something that's so net new, that's so dramatically different that it's going to change the way of the world. And so this is the other thing that I think that we have a huge question that we actually need to say this out loud. One, M&A. By the way, this is something Sam and I talk about all the time. When we talk about the companies that are going to be smart, that's going to be great, they're going to be able to be really great in the future, it's M&A. And I think a great example of that already is Apple. So a lot of people hate this Apple like crazy. They're like, Steve Jobs died. You're not creative. You're not innovative anymore. You don't do anything that's very interesting. But the simple fact is that in a few years, Apple will probably be the largest semiconductor creator in the world, the largest chip maker in the world. And their chips will be chips that people will be envious of. And you know what? They've just been sitting over here chilling in Silicon Valley for probably the last decade or so. If you actually start looking at the companies they acquired, the people that they hired, they have been planning this moment so that when it got too expensive, so everyone else in this country is laying off employees. They are talking about how much more expensive it is for them to do business. And Apple's like, actually, for the past decade, we've been slowly putting every single resource that we possibly need. We've been bringing it in-house so that we can do it. And we did it through acquisition. So I had to get on my soapbox and say that because that is a significant part of this conversation. I think you just like wrapped that up very well in a bow. It's the, they were thinking about Horizon 3, that being semiconductors a long time ago, and they were putting the, the chips in place for it to make sense, whether they were buying talent or acquiring other manufacturers or whatever it was that they did. There are different ways to solve the problem of how do you place your bets in these horizons? It's really about how do you even think about what is horizon three for my business or horizon two for my business? And how do I even start looking in those places to find one, the inspiration, the insight, or fine, you have an idea. Well, how should, how do I go about placing my bets or executing on it? Yeah. So uh, there's a lot there. I think on the first side, it's about on the M&A side and I think in a lot of ways, a lot of companies don't have the resources to be able to acquire 
the new and different technology or experiences that they want. And so then they have to partner with these organizations that have the technology. And my biggest challenge there, and I'm not saying that it's never been done under things that I've been working through, but the biggest challenge there is that if you're working with a partner to create new and differentiated technology, that company that you're partnered with is now creating technology that they could deploy to their entire customer base. And if you were saying that, hey, this new technology is going to be something defensible for me, building exclusivity into those contracts is wildly expensive. And so whatever I build to make me better, well, now that company that's going to partner with everybody else also has that thing. So whatever that secret sauce is, is now everybody's sauce. And that that's harder to swallow when you think about partnering. When you think of M&A, I think the long game there is to say, what is the actual cost of integration, transition, and scale for this new and differentiated technology to come in-house and now thrive within the culture of the company that's acquiring it? And I remember, and I shouldn't speak out of turn, but I remember talking to somebody that was on the M&A side of FedEx. And I said, well, what's your biggest problem? And they said, well, we go to these European carriers and integrating them into one, the mode of working is always a challenge. As you go European and the United States, they're like, that's the first challenge. And then you have your technology integration. And those things, you may think it costs hundreds of millions of dollars for you to buy that company, but that cost of integration is so much more expensive over the course of years and how to integrate those systems and all of those things. And so the costs become that much greater. Now, Apple, you mentioned, obviously has been doing this for a long time. They've got a playbook that they're following, but they've done it over what you said was decades. And that's a really great indicator there is to say that if you're going to buy, you've got to be able to prepare. Not only are you paying for this company, but you are going to have to invest the time and resources necessary to integrate for scale. Otherwise, you'll never get to those end results. And I imagine if it were easy, Apple would have released this, would have been doing a lot more in the business space that they're in, that they're able to get into now 10 years ago. But I believe that it was a time in the process for them to be able to get to that point. Um, it's never easy. Something that's really interesting there that you talked about, you, essentially you talked about learnings and how learnings can impact what decisions that you make. And this is something I, I think that would be very interesting to kind of see when we get into the surprise of one, two, and three, because one of the things that's fascinating is on one side, you can clearly see, like, I'm pretty sure that at Apple, they were like, well, they're only going to want phones and iPads that are faster and faster. They're more efficient. There's more energy efficient that allows them to also have really great battery life. So it makes sense to do chips, right? Like that, I'm sure there was an insight, a deep insight that they had from users and how users use their products that it just made them think through this. And so Ken, as someone who deals with innovation constantly, how do you go about determining when a learning is something this is a game changer, we just aren't investing versus this is a learning and like it could be a red herring type of learning. I'm sure that Uber, when they decided to do Uber Freight, they were like, oh, well, because transporting state stuff is important and we support businesses that need stuff that gets transported, let's naturally move on to this because we think we're a logistics company. Tam and I have very clearly said they're a convenience company, what they're good at, not the actual logistics part of this. So can it's, can you tell us a little bit or go a little bit into how do you determine when a learning is something that you should operationalize and versus when it's a red herring? Yeah, so I think it's sort of interesting, right? So like, let's go back to that Apple example really quickly because I think that, that there's something telling there. Obviously, Apple in their analytics, in their internal analytics is top notch. And so really, it's a matter of understanding the levers and the volume and figuring out what we're doing is we're paying X. We'd let, if we're going to scale, we're going to be paying X percent at for Y or Z timeframe, and it's going to cost us this much money. And if we were able to buy this company and bring it in-house, we'd be able to lower costs. It was a very easy, like, I'm not saying it was easy, 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 but I'm saying 
the learnings were there. They knew what they knew. They knew where their strategy was taking them. They knew what they were going to try and be getting after. And they just determined that on paper, it looked a lot better for them to be able to acquire and build out this capability of their own. I would imagine if I were at Uber, the thinking that I would have would be to say, what do we do that we know freight companies don't do well? And that would be within the user experience. They would say, people are able to open our app. They're able to achieve the thing that they want to achieve. It's quick. It's delightful. People are very happy to, to utilize that service in a meaningful way. And I don't ship a lot of freight. And so I don't know how it is completely, but I do understand that shipping things, of course, internationally is really muddled in a lot of logistics and paperwork and operational capabilities. And if I were to go through Maersk today and try to ship something, I imagine it would be extremely difficult, right? I think there's probably paperwork, even if it was online, it probably wouldn't be a great form. It probably doesn't remember the things that I told it before. Again, I can't say emphatically that this is the way it is. However, if I were Uber, I would say, hey, we can probably create some of the dissonance in the process of actually transporting goods from A to B. And if we can get really good there and we can start to build some name recognition, we could probably control some level of what these shippers are doing and how they're getting some of these customer base and will be the top of their funnel. There's no way they were going to build ships to go across the sea. Um, and so I think they were probably right in their hypothesis there. I'm not sure how they executed it. And I'm not sure if the customer base was big enough for them to actually have a big revenue, right? If I'm a large shipper and I'm shipping things thousands of items a day through these giant transport channels, then no, I'm probably not shipping to Uber. There's probably no benefit for me in that capacity. And those that aren't doing it, there may not be enough of those customers to actually make it worth it for growth. I don't know. Um, but that's what sort of the logic that I would be going through. Let's pretend you do have the right learnings, right? Like you've done experiments, you've talked to your users, you have lots of data. And so you have a very clear insight, right? You're just like, no, I definitely understand what we should do and why we should we do it. But having said that, I've worked in corporations, I'm sure that you've worked with corporations too, Ken, where even when you have all the right insights, you have all the right information, it's still very difficult to operationalize those things, right? It's still very difficult to take that and actually build something that people want to use or even do it in a timely or even a, an effective or efficient manner. The question is, is like, what the heck is the problem with corporations? Why is it so hard to innovate? What do you think that they should be thinking about or doing differently in the future? Yeah, so that's like the the big problem with innovation. And I think it really comes down to, there's a lot of different facets of it, right? So I'm a big fan of doing proof of concepts, going into the marketplace as minimally as possible and getting the feedback that you can. I can tell you that whenever you do prototyping into the marketplace, you're never coming in with a comprehensive solution. You're coming in with a specific idea of what it is that you want to do. And then you have to be thinking about how whatever it is that you put out into the world is going to integrate into the larger product that you've got out there. You had mentioned Netflix. If Netflix was going to be testing a new way to navigate through, obviously that's an incremental innovation and you could do that through A-B testing or through some test groups. But if they were offering something wholly new and different, like a, uh, I don't know, a video player, let's say they were going to do a handheld video player, which obviously is insane, but let's just say they would have to create everything outside of their core infrastructure They'd have to get it out into the marketplace. They'd have to get those learnings back. And then you have to think about the scale of their learnings. And is that statistically significant to the rest of the business? And maybe it is, and maybe it's not. But for a company like Netflix, it would be really hard for them to get that many people out there in the marketplace using a product to emphatically understand that if we integrated this into the core Netflix offering, 
it would be mammothly explosive. It's always a little bit of gut that says, is this more valuable than the other stuff that we could be doing in that same space and put it out? And that's the crux of the problem, right? Is what you're testing in this nascent innovation space significantly impactful enough for me to disrupt all of the other things that I've got planned, all of the incremental features that I want to get out there, all of the new tangential products that I want to get out there for a new product market fit to a new audience. You mentioned gaming. So for example, because gaming came into the Netflix ecosystem, how many usability changes couldn't go into the Netflix ecosystem and how many of the disruptive technologies that they wanted to get after couldn't get in because they were doing that instead. So there's a lot of the opportunity costs that fall into that. And I'd say that when doing gaming, how many people could you have possibly tested with in order to say, yes, this is going to redefine the Netflix of the future. At some level, you'd have to say, we have these indicators. Now you talk about the problems that go on internally about why these companies can't get after that sort of innovation. And then you have those people that are leading the core business and they're saying, hey, this 2% lift that I could manufacture through this feature enhancement is going to be better than a 0.05% lift you could do through gaming. In addition to do the gaming infrastructure work and now the re-education of the customer to start using those in a meaningful way, I've got to market in meaningful ways. And that means I can't market other things because it's going to saturate the message. And so that's the big fight that you're having internally at these companies that you have these program leaders that are saying, hey, I am profitable and I want to become more profitable. And I've got a 90%, I'm 90% certain that the changes I'm going to make are going to increase my revenue by X, Y, or Z. And now you've got this innovation person coming in and they're saying, hey, try this other thing that's no guarantees. And now I've got to take that in because I'm running the core product. I've got to integrate that in and that'll disrupt all the other things that I want to get going. It'll introduce complexity, it'll introduce problems uh, and all of those things. And that's a core, that's a core problem that people have to deal with when running their businesses, which is why I do think that the partnership between innovation and the rest of the organization is so, so important. Um, I do think that at some level leadership needs to determine that they believe that there is a, a ceiling to how many customers they'll be able to acquire and at what rate they'll be able to acquire them when they determine that an audience shift will be necessary and they need to look out over the course of time to determine that. And then they've just got to make a bet. And that's why it's called a bet, right? Because you're not sure of those outcomes, but you've got to make that shift to say, hey, we are going to put our foot down and say we're doing this. And Netflix has history of doing that when they went away from DVDs and they first said we're doing streaming only and there was the revolt by the customer base. Remember that before they got into just, uh, they, were, they did that whole shift. And I forget the name of what it was that they went out into the marketplace with. Um, and then they realized they were just too early. And so they backed off it and then they came back into it by integrating it much more slowly. And so I think it's a matter of figuring out how you're going to be doing that over the course of time. So it doesn't disrupt your quote unquote sacred cow, but you do begin to open the doors for that new audience to come in and, and provide a whole bunch of value to the organization. Is innovation like an apex company's luxury or is it like a drowning man's lifeboat? Here we're just saying like there are these managers in the middle who are making a Sophie's choice between do I get a guaranteed lift, a predictable lift with this um, sure thing? Or do I take a bet and potentially gamble my reputation and my lift and all the, the things that come with that? Um, and so who gets to innovate? in these scenarios well so really quick i just want to jump in here you had mentioned sophie's choice and it's not sophie's choice right so i'm old enough to have watched the brady bunch going up anybody else watched the brady bunch going up 
No? All right, so there's this show called The Baby Brunch, and this, these parents have bunches of kids and whatever. But I bring that up to say, like, they brought in another character, like, I don't know, six seasons into The Brady Bunch, and his name was Color Cousin Oliver. And he was always Cousin Oliver. And that's the thing to remember is that when I'm in innovation and I'm bringing up a new and different thing, uh, it's not Sophie's choice because I'm Cousin Oliver. I'm expendable. Who, the real kid, the kid that they raised, that's the one that's going to win in every single case. And so when you come up and you're like, hey, I got this new and different thing, but you're I don't know, but little Bobby, who you've raised and you've coached and you've mentored to do new and do a new feature, comes up with something also. Who are you going to pick? Me? I'm sitting here off in innovation. I'm going to come up to you and say, use my new thing. Or Bobby? Of course you're going to go with Bobby. Bobby's yours. You. So that's what these leaders are thinking through. As an innovation leader, the thing the best you can ever do, and you'll never completely get over on it, right? There's no secret formula that says this is what wins, is that you need to understand the language that group is talking in. So whatever that leader is saying to Bobby in regards to how they need to strategically orient towards success, what product market fit looks like, growth indicators, all those analytics that they're going to be looking at, you need to test with those success metrics in mind, and you need to be able to speak that language as if you're then. Because the best you can possibly ever do is to say, here's the apples to apples comparison between what you want to do and what I want to do. And either I'm right or you're right or we're both right, but one of us is going to be right or one of us is going to gain more value for the organization wholly. And so you as a leader need, now need to make, now need to say, all right, I'm going to go with what Bobby said because it says it's going to be this much success based upon these factors we care about, or I'm going to go with Ken and his idea and all the things that I think that they care about, which is the surefire thing. Probably Bobby's closer to the core audience that's going to be using the thing, has seen all the user behaviors that go for it. Innovation will never be that close to that level of information, even though we should try. And so then it's about the narrative and the storytelling necessary to pitch it and sell it and say either, hey, let's do both. Let me figure out how I make it super cheap for you to be able to do this thing. Let me get to Bobby. How do I figure out and combine with what Bobby is doing? Because that's going to be the fastest path that I have moving forward. So anybody in innovation should be speaking to the core product teams and figuring out how do you marry what you want to do with what they want to do. And there is always a point where you can join and create partnership there and make their lives a lot easier because they want to innovate too. They don't want to just be a feature shop. They want the new and differentiated thing out there. Ken, this kind of negotiating that needs to happen, this is the playground where startups thrive, right? Because all startups are essentially in the Horizon 2 business, right? They wouldn't make a Horizon 1 problem. They would be very iterative. That's a lot of competition. There's not a lot of juice to squeeze for a startup to come out and come up with a Horizon 1, basically Uber with split fares. It would be make no sense. Every startup is essentially in the Horizon 2 business. Some are in the Horizon 3 if you're in deep tech. I want to get back to Horizon 2 in a second about how it's not necessarily about new tech. Really, it's about new business models. Like a lot of the tech is there. Like everybody who's using generative AI right now is using is in the Horizon 2 space. And that is all open technology that they're using, right? You're, there's like a billion now all using the same underlying technology to create some new value proposition vis-a-vis some new startup that they're creating. This is Horizon 2, right? But they've invented no tech. Uber, when it started with Horizon 2, they invented no technology. What's the point that I'm making? The point that I'm making here is this kind of battle that you have with innovation managers, the innovation group, and these managers that are close to the core is a bickering that startups don't have to have. They just go and solve a problem. And 
just making an observation about how is that a good thing for an organization to allow that to happen when the end of it is essentially you're just going to let the startup prove the point first and then you're just going into M&A. What is it of having a mandated organization? So I think, I think there's sort of interesting things. It's about how close you are to a specific customer. And I think that your internal innovation teams are always going to have a better idea of how your organization operates, the culture it works in, the technology that resides there. And I will say that your internal corporate innovators are always going to be able to get to market faster than integrated M&A. Now, the difference is, is that if you've got a company, a startup that's operating and you acquire it, it runs in and of itself for however long as it runs. And that becomes a point of being able to generate a ton of revenue for the organization if it's successful. Integrating it is always going to cost a whole bunch of money. And that makes sense. The difference is, is that with the feedback loops that come into an innovation team and an understanding of the specific customers that the large corporation is trying to address, they're always going to be able to get that broad view a lot better than the startups that have to focus into a more niche audience in order to find success. I'm going to go back to your example of the Brady Bunch. And I, I have another example for you. So I, I went back to the example of like the cousin example, because I think there's very interesting. So there's a movie called The Good Son. Have you all heard of the movie The Good Son? Okay, so I, first of all, when Macaulay played that part, I knew he was going to grow up to be something different than when he started off his home alone. That's all I'm going to say, first of all, because he hit different in that movie. So Elijah Wood, in this case, is actually the cousin, right? And so the, the clutch part of The Good Son is that essentially the mother has to decide whether she's going to save a son who maybe is a bad seed or if she's going to save the cousin who is the good kid. And so, Ken, you were talking about the cousin, like you always going to choose the biological kid, the kid that you've grown up with, that you raised. But sometimes that kid that you raised is a little asshole and you need to get rid of that kid. Let because him fall the, off the cliff. Exactly. Let him exactly. fall off the cliff. Because if you try to continue to support that kid, you're going to go broke. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be old and gray in a home. Nobody going to visit you. Nobody is going to show up for you. And you're going to just be like, what did I do wrong in my life? So I think that's something that happens in businesses. I'll just look at a business. I'm like, your business is literally not working. Like you're, you have not achieved product market fit. Nothing has occurred for you. You really should be looking for them cousins. You should be going out saying, I need to go find better people to take care of me when I'm old because this business is not sustaining me. And so I just wanted to point out that fact because I do think that's a significant thing here. A great example is you know, these companies that are doing layoffs right now, almost all of them. A lot of them said things like, we overhired, we took pandemic growth, and we took it very seriously. We obviously know that that's just like the veneer, because like, just be truthful, there's no way that all of these companies made the same exact mistake, especially considering when you have companies like Google, which have a ton of money in the bank, like presumably, you probably could have reshuffled some of those people, but that's anyway, I'm going to get off my, my soapbox and, and say something else. But the whole point, though, is that a lot of times, you're original business, like the businesses that sustained you, that helped you get your name brand and helped you start to grow, that helped you start to be these different things, is not actually what's going to sustain you. I mean, to the point of Netflix, I think Netflix is actually a good example. They decided to start the pivot into streaming because they could already tell that DVDs were going to go by the wayside. And they were correct. Although, by the way, there's still like something like a million DVD customers in Netflix or something like that. It's actually really like surprisingly a large number of people who still have DVD service with Netflix. But the point is that like being able to say, look over at the cousin and say, actually, I'm going to pay for your college fund because my kid ain't going to go nowhere is something that's very significant that we should also talk about. Because innovation sometimes is about taking the scary leap. 
right? It's sometimes about not being able to quantify and know that it's, you know, how efficient or how effective something is going to be, but understanding that your business model may not sustain you for forever. I mean, I think a great, another great example is GM. So GM has very much committed to all of their cars being electric by 2030. When I think about GM, I think about like big pickup trucks, SUVs. I don't think about electric cars, but I think that they understand exactly where things are going. And even if it's not from a moralistic, like save the earth environment, it's also from a like government is going to continue to create circumstances that's going to be very difficult to manufacture and sell as uh, in cars, primarily because places like the state of California have said that it's not going to be acceptable in the state. And so because it's not acceptable in, in California, generally speaking, many industries will pivot and do completely different changes to their, their business model because they know if it won't work in California, it won't work anywhere. And so the simple point being that like sometimes you have to start, you have to sometimes start to take risks that feel deceptively hard, right? And I say deceptively because a lot of times it actually isn't as hard as you think it is. It's about having the clear focus and desire and wherewithal to commit to it and actually execute on it. That's actually the issue. It's not about the fact that it's too hard to do. And that's something that a lot of people lack. And I think the lack of conviction is actually the biggest issue with innovation than anything else, right? Allow an experiment to actually happen. Allow people to get insights from those experiments. Allow people to take those insights and make strategic decisions to get more insights so that you can get yourself to that place of, of future-proofing your business. And so again, someone, I also love a good son. So I'm always happy to have an opportunity to bring up that movie. And the fact that, you know, I look at my kid too. I tell him, I said, if you turn out to be one of them little sociopaths, you're getting dropped. You're getting dropped off the side of the cliff. I'm not going to have no killers up in the family. It's like you have to make that decision about supporting innovation versus uh, getting stuck and in, in, in getting stuck with the kid that, that may kill you in your sleep, I guess, is the, the, the talk here. So a lot going through my head. So one, I, I do struggle. I don't know. I think a parent would have a lot of trouble being like, all right, kid that I raised since birth and I held as a baby, I'm going to let you die. Uh, I think that a parent is always there to say, like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to do what, you, what I can to get you the services and the support that you need to be at least successful, not successful, but like thrive or survive in the world in a meaningful way. Now, I don't know. I think it's all also when you hear about a whole bunch of horrific things that some kids have done to their parents. Both parents are always there for them, right? They're always, I'm going to save you. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to try to help, right? It's very hard for, I think, a parent to abandon their kid. Now, I will say there's other thing that you were talking about. And I'm not sure how it is in a lot in every company. In the companies that I've seen, when a company grows so big and they find their product market fit, and if you think about DVD world, yeah, I think there's a huge market that's available for the DVD business. And I see that because I see a ton of red boxes everywhere I go. And so, yeah, people want these DVDs and they want to get them and some of them want them on demand. And so that's why that business is there and it exists and it may not be may not be a huge contributor to the bottom line. However, it doesn't hurt and it probably doesn't take a lot to maintain. Um, but back to the evolution of product. And I think some of the failure comes in when product, let's say, when a product organization grows to be so big that there's now different categories and areas of business, product managers really become feature set managers. And if you think about how they're developing new and differentiated features, they're going to figure out how it amplifies their specific parts of the business, not their holistic product. And I think that's a huge thing that's missing from these giant organizations in that product managers are now feature set managers and they're getting their features out and their features are out in the world and they may be 
iterating somewhat, but no one's thinking at the larger scale except leadership. And of course, leadership is in a ton of meetings and they've got the holistic business in mind and they don't know the customer because they're not close to that customer. They're just looking at the data and the readouts from that. And so I think it's really about education and empowerment of the product managers that are actually creating the features to go out into the world. Because I think that if you were to do that, you would be able to see the strategic shifts necessary to continue to thrive into the business. And even though you may not be saying, hey, here's a separate product that we're going to offer for this new and differentiated audience, you might see those products start to morph and shift into something that's more valuable over the course of time, instead of going off the rails, continuing to double down on something that's just not resonating in the way that it used to. So lots in there from saving your kid from a cliff to to really like helping your product managers get a holistic view of the product strategy versus a feature set strategy. But I think that that's helpful. And we've seen that exist in business over the course of time. I really do think it's a problem that companies look at their products like they're babies. They're not. These, the, you know, people who have children don't have an expectation that these kids will be making them money. If you have a business, that product is not your baby. It's designed to make you money. And if you treat it like a baby, this is how you have these companies that just have these products that are languishing out in the market for much longer than it needs to be. You know, Jimmy's been on the sauce for some years now, has not been a productive member of society for quite some time. Let that bitch fall off the cliff. It's not your child. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's, it's been, that's, you, you've you know, kept it way too long and, and it gets into the dirty little lines of, um, you know, how do we make things up or keep this afloat? This idea that Horizon 2 opportunities, putting your opportunities or your bets in Horizon 1, 2, and 3, Horizon 2 doesn't necessarily have to be new technology. It could be a new way of doing business. It's just business model innovation. There are different ways of incorporating technology that already exists to making things unique. There are so many ways to delight customers in the Horizon 2 space. It doesn't require this kind of deep investment that companies, I think they go a little too overboard. They take off more than they can chew. And um, which is why I fail at it a lot. Add it to that, because I really think that's an important part of it. Like, we always talk about, like, I'm a super early adopter, like, super early. I think something is cool. As soon as I can possibly get it, I will try to get it. And a lot of times I'll get these emails. Like, a great example is, I, so I have this uh, car camera. So I live in California. There's so many, like, they can't drive here a lot, right? Like, I got a can't car camera because I wanted proof that I did not cause any of these accidents that happen in this city. And the name of the company is Nexar. And so they started doing a bunch of this really cool stuff. And it was really, really fascinating, though, because they were having some issues and they would literally send an email like every day explaining what the issue was and what the problem was. And I was like, no, we're all early adopters to people who bought your product. We know it's going to be messed up. You are the one who have a different expectation than what I have for this particular product. And so I think that that's something that's interesting that you said there, Tam, because part of it's also about giving things time to grow into what they're going to be, right? And so that's something that you have to do. Of course, obviously there's like this balancing act that you have to find because you can't spend too much money, right? You don't want to spend too much resources, but you still have to give things. You cannot grow a plant overnight, right? You have to till the garden. You have to buy all the products. You have to fertilize. You have to have water. You have to have time. And there's something to that that I think that a lot of companies are making that mistake and they're not brave enough to let things grow. I think that when I'm looking out across whoever I get to work with, whoever I have the opportunity to be with, is that 
I think in general, people workforce falls into three different areas. I think you have your openers, and those are the people that can take you from zero to one, conceptualize, test into the marketplace, understand what it is that the market may want, what it can what it can achieve. And then you gotta transition it. And it transitions into operators, people that are there to maintain and scale that business. And those are your future set enhancements to come in. But I do think that everybody fails to recognize the third set, which are these optimizers, people that understand scale, that come in with new and fresh eyes, that can now differentiate the product again for the next phase of its life. And I think if you get that formula right, you're cool. Now, openers could be optimizers because you come in and you want to reinvent. And that's sort of like taking something from zero to one. But operators are usually operators. And if you're expecting a ton of innovation out of these operators, you're going to fail all the time. And I'm not saying that people can't bleed into specific areas, but generally people's brains work in specific ways and people are risk adverse in specific ways. And I'm not saying you can't train or skill yourself into one area or another. But what I have found is that whenever I've developed a product, and I brought it to market and I've seen the early success indicators and I've started to run and start to scale that business half a year into scaling the business. I literally hate every day. It's not who I am. It's not what I want to be. It doesn't excite me. I'm not passionate about it. I don't care about that 0.01% improvement. I want to go in and I want to build the next thing or I want to fix something that I saw from way back in the day. And I think that in the organizational culture, what people do is they put these successful businesses and they operate them and they continuously operate them. And until you get somebody knocking on the door that says, knock, knock, this could be better and sells it, right? Convincingly says, hey, I could make it better. Just let me test it out. And then, of course, the feature set managers are like, no, you can't test out my product. It's mine. There's all of this conflict and it's a people problem. It's always a people problem and it's a leadership problem from the middle and it's an individual being on the wrong seat on that bus, there's all of these things that flow in. But I do believe that there is a formula that exists here. And I think that the openers are wildly valuable for every organization. They're the ones that are the are saying, hey, I'm not here for a revenue goal. I'm not here to figure out what I'm going to do to change industry. I'm going to, I'm here to learn. And I'm going to be able to translate those learnings into success metrics that you could be able to bank on in a meaningful way and convince you to integrate and then, and, and then if I fail, I fail, but I still learned and now I can inform and maybe I can inform those feature set managers if they're willing to listen, or maybe I'm going to learn enough to optimize something else, or maybe I'm going to learn that it's not the right timing. But I do think that that framework, and I'm not saying that there's not more people or mixed people and there's an Enneagram and blah, blah, blah. But if you think about people that could open a new business and you think about those people that can scale a business, they're not the same. And, and, and I think it's really important to remember that. So I, I agree with that point there, but I think the bigger point to me is about the failing of leadership to create circumstances to even get insights into allowing people to either do a zero to one or to even improve on something. I think that's like, for me, that's the ultimate conversation. Like, it's so, it's so interesting to me that they created this concept of Horizon 1, 2, and 3, because like, first of all, I feel like it's just a regurgitation of like many concepts that have already existed, first of all, right? Like, I think that's the first thing that really kind of comes to mind. Ultimately, what we're doing is we're dealing with the same exact issue that we've had over and over and over again, which is how as a corporation or people who have a business that is a great business, right? Like, and what I mean by great business is, you know, um, you know, you, you have a business that sustains itself, that has, has a decent amount of growth, right? Like has a, a moderate amount of growth every year. It looks fine. And so it just becomes easier and easier to say, well, because we decided to do X and Y and Z and A and B and C, like maybe we don't have time to think about that thing that future proofs us. Like maybe we don't have time to start thinking about 
the the adjacent industry that would delight our customers more, which would actually increase the likelihood that we're able to maintain those those margins. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting about Apple is like the report came out. Um, a day or two ago, that not, not only they are uh, not only are they planning on creating this like new virtual reality um, headset, they're actually trying to create um, like a platform for it. So essentially, they're trying to use they're trying to create a new SDK for virtual reality that will make it easier to make virtual reality games. And the first thing I thought of there is like I was like that's classic Apple, right? Like they they are building something to delight their customers, and then their the re their response to it is, but we can only do so much. So let's create an ecosystem where other people will be a part of our ecosystem and will do half the work for us. And there's something that's interesting about that for me, right? Because like the App Store was one was the first App Store, right? And it completely changes changed the way that we actually use all technology products, right? Every single place is like, oh, well, this is actually an app. Because like so, every website you look at, there's a bunch of apps behind that that actually power that make it, that make it exist, and that's because that first ecosystem existed. And so I think again, the point is, is this is a leadership issue. It's a crisis of leadership more so than it is of whether you need to redefine these different terms of like what innovation looks like. It's about how do you create, uh, how do you engender a, a, a community, an environment, uh, a slate of people who will be patient enough. To Ken, to your point, you're talking about how leaders, the people who have the strategic thought, who understand exactly why certain things need to happen, they're in boardrooms. They're not necessarily with the product managers who are actually responsible for innovating on these things. And so that's a disconnect. And so the question, again, so the question becomes not whether innovation is important or that, you know, should we be investing in innovation? It's how do we as leaders of organizations create a circumstance that great innovation can happen? And that's really the question I think that this, happens here, more so than I, anything I think this else. is about discernment. I think much less about hiring the right people. They would hire who they needed to hire if they made decisions that they needed to make. It's about are they agile enough to make the pivot and what is a cost to that pivot? Take a look at Netflix, right, who, who's doubled down, who's gone really deep in this theory of hyper-serving everyone. We're, there's so many niche slices of segments of content that they make that they just create a lot of content how are they going to switch and be like an hbo right that totally changes everybody's role there how they do business take it you know going back to this clayton christensen is this the innovator's dilemma you have google up against OpenAI, right do they release their own large language model and compete in that way it could fundamentally change the way that they do business these are real questions that companies have to ask we're talking about like really existential questions do we change the way we do business and they may not be incentivized to do that because if they were they would hire the right people so i, th I think i think there's something like so much again in this and that when you're, when you're thinking through, first off, I think innovation has a, it's seasonal, right? There's seasonality that's built into that specific thing. And we're seeing it right now, right? So many part, so many of these big tech companies are now laying off specific innovation areas. And I believe that the people that are remaining from those innovation areas are going to be redirected and they're start to, you'll start to see optimizations coming out of core product, right? Cause that's how you use that brain in a meaning, in a meaningful way. Um, so I just want to throw out that I think that the smart in leadership, right? If you think about Netflix, and I know we're picking on Netflix a lot, and I don't know enough about them to really speak truthfully, but it occurs to me that when they were like, hey, so it looks like our stock price is going down, our earnings are suffering, what do we do? They went, 
right up to an operator and they were like, what could we do operationally to start increasing our revenue? And that operator was like, well, why don't we just stop people from sharing passwords? And they were like, ding, 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 because it goes against our term of use anyway. It's something that we were doing nicely anyway. And it will increase our revenue potentially and we'll offer different subscription tiers. That didn't come out of an innovator, at least as far as any innovator that I could think of, right? Every response they've had in the last year has been very operational. Let's add ads. Let's do this. It's very operational. Right. And, and I don't know what's going on with their innovation team specifically, but I can say that all of those teams that were on big audacious pro projects like um, X, for example, I know had, they, they suffered a bunch of the layoffs and Project Loon may or may not still exist. And the autonomous car may or may not exist. I don't know what's still operating in those areas, but they're now saying, okay, how do we now optimize our core offerings to offer more and better feature sets so that we get adapt to the needs of the future versus creating something that might be a lot more audacious? The tides will turn back, right? And that is where startups get to shine is when companies start to sort of huddle down and focus on their core offerings and, and improve those and optimize those in meaningful ways that they can't be focusing at these external factors that these startups are able to do so. And so it's an interesting season for them. It will shift back again, and then it will shift back. And these leaders that can actually walk that line and figure out where they can pivot to, to your point, Tim, with the pivoting, I think that's going to be really meaningful. I think it's so interesting talking about Netflix and um, um, some of the stuff because I, I worked on a lot of those products. And I will say that actually the password stuff happened long before they started having an economic crisis because it just makes sense. Like, how can you have a product where hundreds of people can use one login if they wanted to? It just it doesn't scale after a while. So so it's one of those things I will. So Greg Peters, the product team, they, they were working on that. And by the way, Greg Peters is co-CEO. I actually really think Greg Peters is a wonderful leader. So shout out to Greg. He's always showed up very well for myself and other people and Netflix. I have to say that because you know how I feel about that other person. Anyway, so back to the point. So Ken, first of all, it was so great having you here. And I, you know, no code is a thing, right? No code, the no code space is very, very huge. In fact, I have launched a couple companies this year and majority of what I did, everything I did, um, the websites I created, all this other stuff are all no code websites. There's like a lot of the forms I have are no code forms. A lot of my services that I'm actually using to power this is no code. And again, this is one of those things that Tam was like, B, this is what's up. You need to like understand. Of course, like I listened to, to, to Tam because she gets like the big sister vibe and I very much respond to big sister vibes. That's how this works out for me. And it has worked out exceptionally well for my businesses. And so we want to know, like, what do you think? What do you think about the no code space? What does this mean for innovation? What does this mean for businesses, et cetera? Yes, yeah, so I think it really depends on what you're trying to do. And if it's, if what you're trying to do is put together a few pieces to validate a specific thing or to operate something that's a fairly simple thing to operate, then no code is dope. I think it's great. I think the challenge comes in is that when you go in and you start to do your customer discovery and how they actually use your product and you start to need to integrate specific things that either don't exist already or need to be integrated in ways that are very, very complex to satisfy that consumer need, you'll start to see no code break down. And so when you think through one initial prototype, for sure, but can you go in there and can you sell your concept out or can you iterate it in a nice and easy way without having to rebuild your entire product? And the way that I've seen no code is that no, it doesn't scale that way. I think you get your initial concept validated. You can create your forms. You may even be able to transact and those things are great. And if that's your entirety of your business, yes, do it, go for it. But if you're going to create a service offering that's got multi-functions that are built in that you now need to iterate because of specific customer demand, and those 
laid down paths that no code offers you are not available, you are now stuck with having to develop. And because what you develop may or may not integrate with what you've already got going, maybe it will, but maybe it won't, you're going to find yourself with more costs later on. And so it's a chicken or the egg. It says, am I so convicted in my audience validation that I know that I need to scale this thing? And if I am, then I should probably just pay to develop in a meaningful way so that I know I can have control over the code and where it needs to go. If you're not convicted in what you're doing and you're sort of just throwing things against the wall, then yeah, no code all day long. But I can tell you that if I was going to go to an investor with something no code, I've either got to get enough of an audience base to make that the valuable defensible mode for somebody to buy and invest in, or, or I'm just building something that anybody else can build like that with no problems. And I'm going to struggle to iterate it. I'm going to struggle to change it to fit the multiple audiences that I want to hit or to meet the need to create product market fit from the get-go. Now, I will say that in corporate innovation, it's just cheaper for me to develop something from the ground up. And I will say that that should be a threat for those entrepreneurs looking to build no-code environments, because if there is some level of validation, those corporate innovators can see that validation coming through and they can be building out scaled systems that are able to accommodate more of the need of the specific audience. And that is a threat. And so no-code, if anything looks like it's too good to be true, it usually is. I'm telling you, you can get your learnings, you can use your AI tools to get your branding, you can do all of those things. But when but when you actually have to start to build some traction, I think that those no-code tools, excuse me, the no-code tools will start to struggle and you'll have to build something anyway. I agree with everything you're saying. I think your only head start is that we know that corporations take a very long time to make a decision. So yes, they can build an enterprise solutions better than you can, but it will be two years before they get to that point. A corporation can crush a startup with just their innovation team's reach, right? Somebody can turn on something at Netflix that could reach 100,000 users while a startup is trying to get 5,000 users and crush that startup. And then Netflix says, nah, not good enough. So those innovation teams can move fast. Fair game. I just like to start fights. It sounds like to me that the no-code space can get you started. So at least at the very least, if you need to more quickly get to a point of validation no code is where to go but as soon as you need to harden which i think i 100 percent agree with as soon as you need to actually harden something sure you need to invest time and energy Sam and i if there's no, nothing else that you get out of this podcast is that we believe that you need to quickly get to as many insights as possible right and so that's what i love about no code spaces because for me i was just like well i need to find out if this business makes sense and then I got enough information to say that it makes sense. And then, of course, over time, I will develop other resources and tools and things like that. But the simple fact is that this is what we, when we talk about equity, when we talk about equality, when we talk about democratizing opportunity, that's what I love about the no-code space. Because I am a Black kid from Mississippi. And there are many things I did not have from a tools perspective. And the fact that I have little cousins who know how to use these tools and they're using them to start their own graphic design business and things like that. That's what I'm really excited about. I'm really excited about the fact that we are creating a new generation of entrepreneurs who are going to do things much better, who are going to do things much faster, and hopefully do it in such a really great and logical way that they will be the next generation of innovators in this country. Thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are the Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask 
just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to The Drops Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.